Father, the greatest need of every soul in this room is to see the glory of Jesus Christ in your scriptures. There isn't another need that is greater than that, that is more significant, more immediate, more eternal than that need. And so my prayer, Father God, is that you would, by your grace, remove any weakness and brokenness from our hearts, our minds, my heart, my mind, that would cause us, any sinfulness that would cause us not to hear your voice. And that you would, through this parable one more time, open our eyes to not only see the call that we have on our lives to love our neighbors, but, Father, that you would open our eyes to see the very love that Christ Jesus showed us in the cross. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So for me, going through this parable, it seems that every time, every time I read it now, it seems that I'm turning over a, a stone in this story to find something new that I did not see before. And this week is that for me. It's, uh, and I don't know if this has been redundant for you. We've been in the Good Samaritan parable, which is relatively short for almost two months now. Um, but it's been very convicting to me, so I guess that alone is, is worth it for your pastor to be convicted, and rewarding. Um, and so my hope, really, for this series is that God, through this parable, would plant seeds in our hearts that as we engage the communities we live in, as we engage Kingsgate, as we engage the people that God has put in our lives, this story would not stop on the pages but the story of the Good Samaritan, the realities that are being engaged there would continue through our obedience to love the people God has put around us in the very ways that we see in this parable. And so next week, elementary kids, you can listen up. I'm going to be with you. I have the distinct privilege and joy, and I do this periodically, of of serving uh, the children of Risen Hope by teaching in kids. And so next week, I will get to do that. It is an honor. And if you have not uh, done that yet, I would invite you humbly to consider serving in kids. It is a glorious thing. These kids are, are awesome. We don't have a, a kids ministry that's sort of on the periphery to allow parents to learn about Jesus. We have a kids ministry that we emphasize the Bible and, and we uh, don't think of our kids as sort of like second-class citizens that we're trying to occupy while we get you know, our, our Bible understanding um, here in this room, we consider our kids very much the church. They are the church. Um, in some ways, they're the most significant part of our body. And so I would invite you to consider serving in kids. Um, David next week, David Woodard. I don't, I don't, is, are you here somewhere? Okay, he's in, he's in kids now. Um, he's going to be teaching the last message in this series. And then after that, I'm very excited we're going to go into the book of Jonah. And Jonah is amazing. Uh, um, in preparation for this, I'm just, I've become very excited for what God might do in our time in that book, um, which is filled with profound grace for a broken, sinful world and for us. So um, I'm excited about that. Before we dive in this week, one caveat up front. 
about what we're going to talk about today, and this will make more sense as we get into the text. Nothing I say in the next 40 minutes, and I just want to say this up front here, nothing I say in the next 40 minutes has anything to do in my mind at all about financially giving to Risen Hope. Nothing I say today has to do with that. I'm talking about something different than writing a check to a church or supporting a church financially. Um, And so for me, this text, this passage, and looking at the generosity of the Good Samaritan has everything to do with the condition of our hearts, to be generous. What is Christian generosity? What is distinctively Christian generosity, and how does it come to being in our hearts? That's what I'm talking about today. So radical generosity that the world outside these doors doesn't even really have a framework for. That's what I want to look at today. So turn with me again to Luke 10. We're going to start in verse 30 and read this parable again. Luke 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus says. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw this man who had been beaten and stripped by these robbers, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns to the crowd, specifically the lawyer that asked this question, and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So last week, just to catch you up a little bit, we looked at an element and an ingredient to the kind of love the Samaritan shows this man who's been brutalized, robbed, uh, left for dead, effectively. And we saw that the first sacrifice he makes is a sacrifice of time. And we recognize that for a lot of us, this is the greatest sacrifice that we could make because our time is very precious to us. And we talked about this concept of the idolatry of the schedule or the idolatry of good things in our lives, good things that we love and we care about and we should care about, but things that might prevent us from doing acts of love and acts of mercy for those who are in need. And this Samaritan is immune to that kind of idolatry. He doesn't express it here. He's not He's not constrained by his schedule. In fact, he railroads his entire schedule to care for a random, broken, bloody stranger on the side of the road. And the stunning thing about this act of love here, the the most stunning thing in my opinion, is how lavish it is. The language 
that Jesus uses here, given how short this parable is. Think about how short it is. And then listen to me as I read through verse 34 and 35 again to what the Samaritan accomplishes in just this short period of time. He went to the man, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So think about these things. He goes to the man. He binds up this man's bloody wounds, pours oil and wine to clean them and sanitize them. No doubt that costs him money because oil and wine are not cheap. Then he sets the man on his own animal and he walks with the animal. You get this picture of this man hanging over this animal that the guy was using for transportation, walking to the nearest possible end. And then he stays with the man and he cares for the man there. He doesn't know this guy. He does not know this person. And like we said a few weeks back, this person may have likely despised a Samaritan doing this sort of thing, but he stays the night, takes care of the man, nurses him back to some kind of of health. And then the next day, because we know that he's got some sort of appointment that he's got to get to, he has to leave. He tells the innkeeper, here are two denarii, two days wages, basically. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I'm coming back and I'm going to pay you for whatever you spend. This is, this is astonishing. Think about this. This is a blank check. It is a blank check. It doesn't matter how much it's going to cost you to make this man right. I'm going to pay it. Just so that this Samaritan can know that this person's going to recover. It is an astonishing act of love. And if I'm honest with you, it's kind of unbelievable at first blush. It doesn't seem reasonable except for the fact that Jesus is inviting us into this act of love by saying at the end of the parable, go and do likewise. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, before we go and look at the expectation, like Jesus' expectation, he says to you, go and do likewise. Before we look at the expectation of what that is, what is Christian generosity, what I want to do is I want to uh, look at the lawyer, we know from verse 25 earlier in the passage, we didn't read it, but verse 25 earlier in the passage, the lawyer here is testing Jesus. He is not a Jesus fan. In fact, he probably hates Jesus. And instead of Jesus, at this point in the conversation, before he gives the parable, instead of him um loving this man through the parable, or instead of him, instead of him making fun of the man or, or pointing to the man's weakness in his ability to understand the law, what Jesus does here is he loves the man by giving him a picture of love. His love is an invitation to the lawyer to love like this. In telling the parable, Jesus is loving like the Samaritan. He didn't need to do that. He could have just left the lawyer to do whatever he wanted to do in his own sin, but he stops and he tells this parable, which is stunning because the lawyer doesn't deserve this at all. If you read the narrative, you're like, man, this guy, really, Jesus should just split and say, you're not worth my time. 
But he stays there and he loves. And now this story, 2,000 years later, comes to us who are also undeserving. And Jesus is, when you read this passage, think about this. Jesus Christ is loving you by communicating to you the realities that are in this story. That's what's going on here. So why, why does Jesus use this lavish, extravagant depiction of love? He could have described it with any other kind of language. He could have just said he cared for the man. Go and do likewise. But he doesn't. He goes on and on with this description of love. And the only possible reason for him to do that is because he actually wants us to love like this. His desire for his people is for them to show a kind of love that is a little bit absurd, a little bit ridiculous, a little bit unbelievable. And so when we talk about love expressed in this way, what we are talking about is Christian generosity. We're talking about when Christians give their time, their energy, their resources, everything that they have at their disposal to meet the needs of people who are around them. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, I think when we think about generosity broadly, we recognize, I mean, no one's going to say that generosity is a bad idea, Christian or not. No one's going to say in the world, in the secular space, generosity, I mean, no one who's rational is going to say generosity is a bad thing. Most people agree that generosity is a good thing. It's not controversial. Regardless of what religion you subscribe to, regardless if you are an atheist, a believer, an agnostic, it doesn't matter. Most people are going to say giving to other people to help them is good. But people, when they do that, they have in their minds all sorts of motivations for doing that. And there are a variety of really good motivations to do that. Maybe they have a surplus of money. Maybe they just have a lot of wealth. I don't need all this money. I could give a portion of it to somebody else, and I would be no worse off for it. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a matter of them not wanting to see suffering in the world. Maybe they saw someone suffering, someone experiencing some pain, and they want to relieve that suffering. Or maybe it's even more simple than that. This is something that a lot of you guys experience already. Maybe you just want to see someone smile. Maybe you're giving to someone to make someone happy, and you share in that happiness when they are happy and glad because they receive something. These are all good things. These are all good reasons to be generous, but they are not exclusively Christian motivations. They are what we would theologically call common graces. God gives them to every people on the planet the desire to do these things, to feel pain when someone else is suffering. That's a common grace given by God no matter what people believe. But the interesting thing about it is that when the Bible commands us to be generous, it never gives us these reasons. It never gives us any of these natural, instinctive reasons. Generosity in the Scriptures isn't rooted necessarily in any of these reasons, but in something that is completely different. There is a, a different dynamic at play in the heart of the Christian. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few passages, and I want you to see, kids, I need you to be a detective here. I want you to listen to these passages and tell me 
what you spot here as the common reason, the main reason why Jesus wants us to give. So listen closely. I'm going to rattle them off. All right, Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Matthew 10.42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Acts 20, 35. In all things I have shown you, this is Paul talking, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and, receive, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then finally, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, hopefully, you see something of a theme in these passages. Commands to be generous, to give our time, our energy, and our resources. And I just pulled from the, <coughs> from the New Testament a fraction of them. Did not go into the Old Testament, did not go into Proverbs, which is where I think first century Christians would go to see these things. Um, but same kind of command. Give, and it will be given to you. In other words, the primary motivation in the heart of a Christian to be generous would be to be blessed like Christ invites us into. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus really means that. That's not an empty promise. There's a blessing in giving. And we can see from these passages that the primary blessing in view isn't some temporary resource. It's not some financial gain. It is a heavenly reward, not in our present life, Mainly, it is a heavenly reward of a blessing to come for the, for the life to come in eternal life. And in fact, the last passage we read, 1 Timothy 6, tells us not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of, of financial wealth. Paul looks at the wealth that you can have in the world and he refers to it as uncertainty. That's what that is. It's uncertain benefits, but rather set our hope on God who is the ultimate provider of all things. And the treasure Paul's looking at here is the treasure of eternal life, what is truly life, a good foundation for the future. The treasure that he has in mind here isn't an earthly treasure. It is an unfailing treasure in the future with Christ. And so throughout Scripture, this is constantly the motivation that is held out for why believers can be and should be radically generous in this present life. There is an eternal reward, an eternal blessing in heaven that fuels and strengthens Christian generosity. Now, some of you are already where I was in my mind when I was looking at this text and doing this exploration. If I was tempted to be skeptical, and I'm going to tempt it for just a second, I might say that this looks kind of wrong. 
This is a little bit like pie in the sky, carrots on the end of a stick. You just want me to conform to a moral standard so I get something at the end. That's, that's what you want me to do. I do something to get something. That's not true generosity. How could that be true generosity? I mean, that looks like, and the secular world would tell you, that looks like selfishness, veiled in generosity. How can an act be good and righteous if the primary motivation you have in doing it is to get something in return? And to be honest, that would be a fair concern on the surface, except for the fact that it fails to capture that this aspect of Christian generosity that we're going to look into, eternal life, is ironically the most radically selfless motivation, and it makes Christian generosity invincible. It makes Christian generosity unable to be stopped or prevented or hindered. And so for us to see this, what I want to do is I want to hold out an example of Christian generosity for the rest of our time together today. And I want to look and ask, what does Christian generosity look like? What is the source of Christian generosity? And how does this motivation work into it? And it's going to show us in this passage that Christian generosity is invincible. That cannot be said for any of the other motivations I gave you earlier. Good motivations. Those motivations will fail. They will not they will not succeed in the end in every situation, but Christian generosity will. And this is the same generosity that we see in the Good Samaritan parable. This is the same generosity that Jesus is inviting us into. So please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Context here is Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And he's inviting them to be generous. In fact, these two chapters are pretty much exclusively him engaging generosity in the Christian life. It's, they're beautiful chapters that describe what it is to give as a Christian. And he does at the beginning of this chapter invite them into generosity by showing them what these churches in Macedonia have done, how they've given. So listen to how he describes this, starting with verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is an astonishing passage on so many fronts. We could spend weeks in just this passage looking at all the angles that this affects our life. But I want to look at a few specific points. The first question I really want to have sort of governing our thoughts here is what is different about Christian generosity? What makes Christian generosity different than the good generosity that, experiences, that is experienced outside in the world? Paul begins by telling the Corinthian church how, this, how these Macedonian churches gave. And when he, he's talking about Macedonia, he's talking about 
Philippi and uh, Thessalonica and Berea, these churches that are sort of in northwestern part of his missionary journeys. <laughs> and they are giving to the saints in Jerusalem. Right now in Jerusalem, there is a severe famine. People are struggling to live and survive. And Paul says to them, hey, listen, the gospel came to you from Jerusalem. It's right and good for you to share in your material blessings with Jerusalem as they go through this extreme affliction that they're experiencing. So he enlists all these churches in the Mediterranean to help. And so the Macedonian churches are doing this in an extraordinary way, which he describes here. Um, go back to the, the first slide. There we go. Um, they are giving when they have nothing to give. They're really, they don't have any, any give, ability to give right here. Paul refers to the Macedonians giving here as a grace of God. In other words, the Macedonians, when they think about their giving, they have no illusions about whose money it is. They know that this money came from God. The money itself is a grace from God. It's God's money. That's huge. They are stewards of God's money. Their money belongs to God and is used ultimately for the glory of God, by God. Paul says here that they were begging earnestly for the favor to give. They were pleading with Paul, let us give you something for the churches in Jerusalem. And this word favor here is, interestingly enough, in verse 4, is the same word in the first verse, grace, charis in the Greek. And it means basically they were begging for the grace. They were begging to be participants in this act of God for the people in Jerusalem to relieve those saints. According to the Macedonians, it is a blessing to give um, for this effort. And Paul makes this explicit um, that it is a blessing from God. Like in their minds, the Macedonians' minds, this is a gift of God that we, give, we get to give. Paul makes this more explicit in, in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower, he's still talking to the Corinthians, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul says here, he who supplies the seed and the bread, that's God. God's going to supply your seed. God's going to supply your bread. He will unfailingly supply and multiply your seed so that you can give even more. He's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness, which points back to the blessing that we were talking about earlier. God is going to provide you with every resource you need, and he's going to do even more than that. Listen to what he says here. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Think about that. God will give you the desire to be even more generous than you are now. Your desire towards generosity will be increased as you give, which tells us something profound. It tells us that Christian generosity is not simply a response to stimuli, a response to a need, a response to something else. It is, in a very real way, an act of God in the life of a Christian, through the life of a Christian. Christian generosity, when it happens, like we see here in, 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 in uh, Corinthians, when it happens, 
it happens because God made it happen. He caused it to rise up. That's why they call it a grace of God in verse 1. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that when you give like this, you are giving from the compassion, the well of compassion, the well of generosity of God. And we see why this is so important when we look back at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 2. This is how the Macedonian churches gave. Think about what's going on here. Think about the dynamics. Kids, detective time again. Look at the words that he's using here and figure out how is this possible. Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction, the Macedonians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. So this is, this is how the Macedonians gave. Now, try to play this out in your mind. Paul wants the Corinthians to see this. He's using these words. He's telling the story because it's critical for them to understand how Christian generosity works. Why is it so powerful? When the Macedonians gave, they were giving during a severe test of affliction. A severe test of affliction. They were suffering when they gave this gift, and they were suffering severely. He also says that they gave from extreme poverty. And so while they're suffering, while they're being afflicted, they also lack any resources to give. They have no money to give. They have barely anything to feed themselves. And yet they still gave, not according to their means, but actually beyond their means. They gave well beyond their means. And Paul calls this a wealth of generosity. A wealth of generosity is how he describes this kind of of generous giving. This is wild. This kind of giving is absurd. It is not normal generosity. It is not, this is a kind of radical generosity, same kind of radical generosity we see in the, the Samaritan parable. It is a radical, otherworldly kind of giving. It is extraordinary because the world, the world would approve of generosity by and large, and they'd say it's good and right to give. And they would say, you know, here are our motivations for giving. We give to make someone happy. We give to, to, to relieve uh, pain. We give uh, to, uh, to support someone who's hungry or impoverished. We give because we have a lot. These are good motivations to give. But the issue with all of those motivations to give at a surface level is that none of them would have worked for the Macedonians. The Macedonians were not in a place where they could use any of those secular frameworks for giving. They were in the middle of a severe test of affliction, and they were in extreme poverty. When someone in the world gives to relieve suffering, there is a point at which they will stop giving when their suffering exceeds the suffering of another person. When their own suffering chokes out their ability to give, that's not true of the Macedonians. They were in a severe test of affliction. They gave. And when someone in the world gives because they're wealthy, because they have a lot of money, if they lost that wealth, if they lost it all, then giving in that way would no longer be viable. They would stop giving at some point. But that's not true about the Macedonians. When someone in the world gives because they want to make another person happy, think about this, they will stop when their gladness forgiving when their own joy is crushed by affliction. 
They won't want to give anymore. They've already had so much taken from them, they won't. But that's not true about the Macedonians. The world's generosity, though it is a common grace, though it is noble and should be applauded and it is good and right, and we give in many of those ways. In fact, we're, we're, we're kind of motivated by those ways to give in a lot, of, a lot of times. There's nothing wrong with them. The only issue with them when it comes to Christian generosity is that they're frail and weak and they, they fail to be selfless because it's, it's rooted in a temporary fickle joy, this life. What am I experiencing in this life? What am I experiencing right now? Am I in a place where I can give? I just need me time. The Macedonians don't have, they don't have a, a grid for that kind of thinking. They're like, we have nothing and we are being persecuted by our own people. We want to give. We, we can't, we, we, we're begging you, Paul, please let us give. And he's like, you don't have any money. What, what are you doing? They're like, whatever we, whatever we can give, we'll, we'll give you. For the Christian and for the Macedonians and for the Good Samaritan, generosity that rises from our hearts is not fixated on what we currently have or what experiencing we're currently, we're currently walking through. It is fixed on God's promises, God's provision, God's purposes. And so their giving, the Macedonian giving, is invincible. Paul says in the midst of great affliction, they were being, Philippians 1 tells us that the Macedonian churches were being persecuted by their own country pe- countrymen. They were being persecuted by their families. And they were in the middle of extreme poverty. If they gave anything, they would give beyond their means because they didn't have anything. They barely could make their means. And Paul says in verse 4, they had next to nothing and they, yet they still gave. This is what Christian generosity looks like. It is a radical generosity because it is ultimately invincible. It is rooted in not things that can be taken away in a moment's notice. It is rooted in something that can never be taken away, namely God's promise for us. And so how does this happen? How does this occur? Well, we get a hint in verse Two, he says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed from their joy, from their affliction, from their poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So Paul says they're in the middle of affliction. They're in the middle of poverty. The Macedonians had something else. They didn't just have affliction. They didn't just have poverty. They had, in the middle of all that, joy, an abundance of joy. They had joy. And from that joy, the Macedonians took their impoverished state, their pennies that they had, and they gave well beyond their means because their joy was so powerful that it could not stop them from giving. And so they gave generously. Now, what kind of joy in the world could do that? Like, what kind of joy? Seriously, think about it. It's one thing to give when you are comfortable. And when you got your needs met, and we're in America, like most of our needs are met. There's not a lot of struggles that we have here in the Western world. 
It's one thing to give when you have resources in hand. It's another when you have nothing. Or when you are in pain and affliction. This is countercultural. In, in a culture, in the culture that we live in by and large, where self-preservation and where comfort and we're enjoying our environments, where we live, how we live, what we do, what we eat, this kind of generosity is staggering. It is weird. It is different than anything that we see. So where did this abundance of joy come from? How did it happen? Well, verse 3, three through 5 tells us, Paul says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, men beyond their means, of their own accord, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So Paul is even saying here, I was shocked when this went down like this. I was shocked. Not, this was not as I expected. It was not anything like we expected. They had so little, but the joy in them came from somewhere. It originated from somewhere. It had a, an, a point of origin, and here's the point of origin. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's a big deal. Before they gave any money, before they gave any money, before they gave any of their time, they gave themselves to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to Paul by the will of God. Think about this. They gave themselves completely and totally to Jesus Christ. Their lives were no longer their own. They belonged to Jesus and in belonging to Jesus in that way, they experienced a kind of supernatural joy that so gripped their hearts, so clung to them, that they were able to give even in the middle of poverty, even in the middle of affliction. And this joy wasn't a generic kind of gladness, a random euphoria. It was a joy in belonging to Christ Jesus. They experienced a joy of belonging to Christ. And that joy is invincible. They had Jesus. They had Jesus. What more in the world could you want? This is why Christian generosity is so extraordinary. It is invulnerable to poverty. Christian generosity is invulnerable to poverty. It is invulnerable, invincible to affliction and really every kind of malady in the world that you could experience because it's not of this world. It's not born in this world the Christian's unwavering focus on eternal reward and on the blessing to come isn't a blind hope in some sort of pie in the sky. It is an experience in the present and even more in the future of a real treasure. Not pennies, not the uncertainty of riches. And that treasure has a name. It's Jesus Christ. That's the source of Christian generosity. And when you have Christ as your treasure, you are free. You are completely free to give in radical ways like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. That's not extraordinary. In his thinking, he's like, I didn't give up anything. Christ is my treasure. Christ is the reason for all of my giving because there's more joy in him than there is in anything that you could give me. So listen to Jesus two chapters after the Good Samaritan parable. Luke 12, he says this, tells his disciples, sell your possessions, 
and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Why, Jesus? Why should we do that? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christian generosity is not an exercise in blind hope. It is an embracing of true treasure over everything else in the world. And it is radically selfless because it displays for the world to see, for all of the world to see, that in giving of my resources, my time and energy, I display for you what is supremely valuable to me. I show you what my treasure is. In other words, in this kind of giving that embraces Christ Jesus and the eternity, the eternal blessing of being with him forever, in giving out of that wellspring of joy, I'm inviting others into experiencing the same freedom in the same joy that I have. I become, really in a real way, you become an embodiment, a a flesh and blood example of the Good Samaritan parable. Christian generosity says, you do not know what treasure is until you know who Jesus is. And Jesus is everything to me. Therefore, from the abundance of my joy, I will give and give and give and give. I don't have limitations. In 2 Corinthians 8, we see how this joy comes to a Christian. In verse 9, Paul tells us the source. Where did this joy come from? How did we get it? Like, where did it happen in human history? Where does this joy originate from? How do we get mere humans, sinners, how do we get the very generosity of God in our hearts? It was not free. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, encouraging the Corinthians, inviting them into generosity, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the source of Christian generosity. That's where it began, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is, it is in the fact that Jesus, who is infinitely wealthy, infinitely um, rich in all of his treasures, all of his goodness, all of his glory, became nothing for our sake, died on a tree outside of Jerusalem. That's the source of our joy. It is looking into the gospel and recognizing that we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, we could no, in no way make it happen. In fact, we deserved as sinners eternal poverty, and yet Christ looks at our situation and says, no, no, I refuse to allow that to happen. I'm going to die for these people. And our eyes fixate on the cross. He became poor for our sake so that we would become rich and wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. And the wealth isn't what he gives us. The wealth is him. It is Jesus himself. He is our treasure. So in the act of Christian generosity, as we summarize this, 
born out of the grace of God, fixated on the joy of God, of being with him forever, being with Christ forever, is an invitation into the same generosity, the same joy, because the, Christ, the cross was that for us. The cross was this act of generosity by God through Christ that invites us to be generous. So when you meet the temporary physical needs of others at great cost to yourself, you display to others the eternal value of Jesus Christ. This is what the Good Samaritan parable is all about. I give radically and I give generously because I've been given the most radically and the most generously. I have Jesus and he's worth more than anything else in the world. He is worth more than anything else in the world. Christ is worth more than a comfortable life. The Macedonians know this. Christ is worth more than having every provision met. Christ is worth more than all that we possess and love in this world times 10 trillion. If you have him through the gospel, you have the greatest treasure in the universe. There is nothing greater than that. And so now the invitation comes to us. They went to the Macedonians. They gave themselves to the Lord completely. And we are called to do the same. We are called to give ourselves, put our mind, our heart in his hands and say, whatever you want. And then give to others out of that. So in a few moments, we're going to be worshiping by the act of communion, the Lord's Supper, which is uh, really our celebration of that sacrifice in verse 9 with the bread and the cup. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I invite you to participate, take those two elements as we sing this song and recognize, I want you to hold them in your hand and just recognize for a moment. When Paul says he became poor, the bread and the cup is what he's talking about. He became poor. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ were given to you, not only for your forgiveness, but to invite you into love with the love of God. God does not desire for his love through the gospel to terminate on you and just stop. He wants it to flow through you and love others because of an abundance of joy you have in Christ. Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe. Now let that joy overflow in a wealth of generosity and give yourself to Christ completely and then give yourself to the world. Let's pray. Father, we're talking about impossible, impossible things. If this was possible, it would be easy as flipping a switch, but we know this is an impossible, impossible feat to love like Christ Jesus, to love with the very love of God in the way that the Macedonians did, Father. It is not possible through natural means. We need your Holy Spirit to come. For me, Father, and for my friends, thinking about myself, Father God, and, and I, would, I would invite my friends to think the same way, Help me understand how I can be generous. Help me understand how I can be gracious and loving in this way, no matter the cost, that I just recognize that the value of Jesus is so glorious 
that doing what the Macedonians did comes as a natural outflow of your grace in my life, Father. And this may look different in different ways for different people, Father. It may be an invitation to serve in the church, to serve in kids, to sacrifice time and energy and give that to the children of Risen Hope. It may be an invitation to VBS. David was talking about that earlier. Next week, we've got two VBSs going on at different times. That may be what it is. Maybe it's an act of generosity in just us recognizing our street is not our street by accident. We live on a street with other people. Many of them do not know the love of Jesus Christ. That's for a reason. And I pray that our hearts would become so inflamed with a joy that's found only in Christ Jesus that we cannot help but serve the needs of people around us, engage them, tell them about the gospel, love them sacrificially, Father God. I plead with you to do this in my own life, in all the ways in which I fail to do this every day. Help me to do this, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.